Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 248, The Death of Alfred the Great. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to James, Danielle, and Matt for signing up already. By 897, everything Alfred had known had changed. He was barely in his 20s when he first took the throne, and he really hadn't had a chance to stop for a breath in the decades that followed. For over half of his life, he had been king, and in those years, he'd proven himself to be an energetic and inventive leader. Wessex, under his rule, had been transformed. Defensive structures, public infrastructure, educational reform, legal reforms, military reforms, even the creation of a written history. Hell, he even changed the concept of kingship within the Anglo-Saxon territories. Under Alfred, the entire realm, from the very top and the concepts of what makes a noble with everything from their powers to their obligations to scholarship, all the way to the bottom with the duties of the peasants and the organization of their lives. All of it had been molded to fit his vision. And even though it had been a difficult task, even though he had even lost his kingdom for a time, quite likely due to a coup, in the end, he got what he wanted. He had even transformed his court into a school in the model of the great Carolingian kings of old. Alfred had really done it all. He was an Anglo-Saxon version of Charlemagne, a King Solomon reborn, and consequently, now... He was living in the Wessex that he had always wanted. Furthermore, much of his reign had been defined by those who stood against him. But now, Halfdan was dead. Guthrum was dead. Haston and his army were gone. East Anglia and Northumbria were defeated. There were no looming threats from the continent. His burgle system had worked. The realm was secure. Furthermore, the expanded fleet of Wessex had done its job mopping up the last of the pirates operating in southern Britain. What more could be done? He had worked tirelessly to reach this point, dedicating more than half of his life to this task. And after decades of work, he could kick up his feet and relax. Even his children were fully raised. Edward was proving to be a capable commander in the field and a clear choice for succession, Alfred's line would be secure in him. Athelflaed, Alfred's eldest, was ruling over Mercia with her husband Athelred. And in many ways, she was every bit her father's daughter, and I'm sure he had no concerns about her future. Athelgifu, his third child, was now the abbess of Shaftesbury, which he had actually built for her. Aelthrith was married to Baldwin II of Flanders, and yes, he was the son of everyone's favorite couple, Judith and Baldwin. And at his side, she was reigning as Countess Aelthrith of Flanders. Even Alfred's youngest child, Athelweird, was now reaching manhood and starting his life. And given the scholarly education he'd been given, residing for a time in a scholar and placed, quote, under the attentive care of teachers in company with all the nobly born children of virtually the entire area and a good many of the lesser birth as well, end quote, we can be relatively certain that Alfred could rest assured that his son's future was safe. But with all of his kids well-placed, that also meant that now, Alfred and Aelswitha's most important task, 
namely securing the throne and their line of succession, was done. The kids had left the nest. Alfred's work was truly complete. So now what? Alfred was a king who was defined by crisis. But now, Wessex had a rare moment of tranquility. And when I think about this period in Alfred's life, I have to wonder, did he even know how to relax? We don't know. Asser doesn't tell us what Alfred did to chill out when he was older. Nor does the Chronicle. And that's a tragic omission because I feel like the things that a person does in their free time are just as telling as what they do for work, if not more so. Now granted, had this been 30 years earlier, I think Alfred would probably have passed the time hunting. Or perhaps he would have gone carousing with his hearthmarod, seeking new pleasures. But Alfred wasn't a young man anymore. He was nearly 50. And those years had been hard ones. The years of war and struggle had no doubt taken a toll on his body, as did the years of suffering with a nameless affliction that would come and go without warning. He was no doubt feeling his age. And then some. So even though we know he loved hunting and riding, I find it unlikely he would have filled his time with that. But at the same time, there might not have been a lot of work to keep Alfred busy at home, since the kids were gone and the kingdom's tasks were largely complete. But of course, lacking a massive to-do list doesn't mean that his life lacked purpose. Looking at the records, Alfred's life probably was still quite full. First of all, he was a grandfather. In the middle of all those years of war, Athelflaed and Athelred had a daughter. Her name was Aelfwyn. Now, Aelfwyn was Athelflaed's only child. That's because her birth was so difficult, Athelflaed became celibate following that event. And that's brutal at any age, but Athelflaed at this point was probably only around 18 when Aelfwyn was born. And 18 is young. We don't know precisely the reasoning behind why Athelflaed became celibate. We don't know if they were simply too afraid to risk her life with another child again, since it was so bad the first time. Or if the birth was so hard that she was simply too injured to have intercourse any longer. Both are possible, and both can still happen today particularly in regions that lack access to modern forms of maternal care. But whatever the reason, Athelflaed, like her father, had struggles early in her life. But she did have Aelfwyn. And by the time that peace reigned in Wessex, Aelfwyn would have been about eight years old. Which, if I'm being honest, is a kick-ass age. So if I was Alfred or Aelswitha, I'd probably quite enjoy seeing my young granddaughter growing up and being a part of that. And given the fact that Alfred was the sort of man to raise at least two of his children in court rather than sending them away, I feel that it's a good guess that he would have felt the same way. In addition to Aelfwyn, Aelthrith of Flanders and Baldwin II would have had at least two children by this point, Arnulf and Ermintrude, though it is unclear how involved Alfred would have been in their lives due to the distances involved. But the point is that as Alfred was approaching his 50th birthday, his life would have been full. He had a big family, even if he might have been a bit bored since he didn't have any Danes left to fight. And he also would have had a few political matters to handle. Just because the Danes had left didn't mean that court ceased to function. And courtly intrigue could be just as deadly as a sunburned Scandinavian with an axe. And one bit of intrigue would have taken precedence over all the rest. Succession. Now, for all of Alfred's life, death had loomed over his shoulder. So as a result, his will had been regularly updated. 
But as he was approaching 50, all of this was starting to look a little bit too real. It might not be the Danes, but eventually he would die, and he needed to make sure his affairs were in order. And Wessex was now the most powerful kingdom in Britain, and like any powerful kingdom, it harbored an abundance of ambitious athelings, and some of them even had valid claims to the throne. At this point in Alfred's life, we can be sure that there were at least three athelings with strong claims to the throne of Wessex. Edward, the eldest son of Alfred, probably had the strongest claim. He had the claim by blood, by inheritance, and by the fact that he had proven himself to be a fierce and effective leader on the battlefield. Athelweird, the youngest son of Alfred, might not have had the claim of primogeniture, but the laws of succession in Wessex hadn't been fully baked in yet. Things were still changing regularly, and Athelweird was a highly educated man, so he likely knew that he had the ability to make a play for the throne if he really wanted to. But the bigger threat to Alfred's plan for succession didn't come from his nuclear family. It came in the form of Alfred's nephews. See, Alfred's big brother, the deceased King Athelred of Wessex, had two children before he died. But the throne didn't go to his kids. It went to Alfred. And according to the records, it went to Alfred because their father, King Athelwulf, ordered that the kingdom be granted to the eldest living son of King Athelwulf. And that was Alfred. So that's simple and clear. But it's not so simple and clear when there's no living sons of Athelwolf left. And Alfred was the last. So after he died, it's anyone's guess as to what comes next. Who really had the strongest claim at that point? Was it the sons of the last reigning king? Or the sons of the previous older king who had a higher place on the line of succession to begin with? This was the type of situation that led to the Wars of the Roses, Only this time, it was happening centuries earlier, and there weren't any Plantagenets in England. So what was facing Alfred was a mess. And his nephew, Athelwald Atheling, really did have a good claim to the throne. Furthermore, he was older than Edward, which, at the very least, didn't look that good for Edward. And adding to this problem, it's also possible that Athelwald's older brother, Athelhelm, might have still been alive at this point. He does disappear from the record at around here, so it's possible that he was either dead by now or he died shortly afterwards. But it is possible that at this point, he was still kicking around and probably giving Alfred heartburn. The point is that Edward and his cousin, Athelwald, both had very good claims to the throne. And consequently, both sides had good arguments for succession, and it really would come down to which side the nobles landed on. I mean, think about it from their perspective. Which is the better argument here? I am the son of the current king, and my father has reigned for decades and groomed me for rule. Or, I'm the son of King Athelred, and my claim is higher on the line of succession. And the only reason why Alfred is even sitting on the throne is that my father died young fighting for Wessex, and Alfred superseded my claim. And when he chose to do that, what happened to Wessex? Nothing but bad luck and invasion. And that's because God hates a thief. That's pretty much the same argument that was leveled against the Lancasters. And I imagine that something similar could have been leveled against Edward. And for the nobles listening to this, it would have been a tough call. And my guess is that Alfred was doing all he could to ensure that the loyalists to his branch of the family were staying close and were in key positions of power. After all, it's no good to put all this work into developing the kingdom only to hand the keys over to your brother's kids. That's not how this is supposed to work. 
and Alfred's own father, King Athelwulf, had worked hard to bring the various powerful nobles to his side and ensure that his children would inherit after his death. So I'd be surprised if Alfred wasn't doing something similar, incurring favor with the eldermen and influential churchmen of Mercia, Kent, and Wessex, working behind the scenes to ensure that Edward would succeed over all the other claimants. And we can be sure that Edward was Alfred's chosen. In Alfred's will, Edward was clearly given the lion's share. And there's something else that pops up that gives us another window into Alfred's intentions. In 898, two years after Alfred established peace, a cleric of Rochester drew up a charter. And in that charter was a witness list. Alfred Rex was at the top. Alfred King. But directly below Alfred Rex was Edward Rex. Edward King. We can't say for certain if this was a reflection of the political reality within Wessex, or whether it was just an attempt at propaganda by Alfred or Edward, or even if it was just a moment where the drafter was feeling his oats and just decided to go for it. We don't know. But just looking at the will and Alfred's place on the charter, and also the way that Edward was raised in court, it certainly does look like he was being groomed for rule and was Alfred's primary choice. But as I said there were others. Now granted, Alfred's youngest, Athelweird, probably wouldn't have been too much of a problem. He was being well taken care of in the will, and that would ensure that he had too much to lose in a failed bid for rule. But as for Alfred's nephews, well that was a bit of a tougher nut to crack. But thankfully for Alfred, that problem would have lessened a little bit when at some point in the 890s, Athelhelm died. So eventually, the only real threat to Edward's succession would have been Athelwald. I mean, sure, there probably were the occasional rebellious and grasping eldermen, but as for someone with a strong enough blood claim to actually effectively seek the throne, Athelwald was really the only one to worry about. But in 898, the same year as he was being referred to as Edward Rex, Edward did something that burnished his standing substantially. He ensured that the line of succession would be secure in his hands because he had a child. And this child's name was Athelstan. Athelstan is going to become a big deal in English history. A really big deal. But as for right now, he was just a peanut. And the West Saxons didn't know Athelstan's future. So based on later commentary, it seems like what they were focusing on more heavily was Athelstan's mother, Egwin. And even now, Egwin is a figure of enormous controversy amongst those who knew who she was. She was the first consort of Edward, and there are rumors that have reached down throughout the ages that she was a mere lover of Edward and not a properly recognized wife. And if true, it would be scandalous and would damage Edward's claim, and also would damage Athelstan's. Barbara York, however, argues that these rumors were exactly that and that they were put out by rivals of Edward and Athelstan. And politically, that does make a great deal of sense, but unfortunately, we can't be sure that this was the case. The truth is that we don't know anything concrete about Egwin's parentage or the nature of her relationship with Edward. We don't know if she was a concubine or a lawful wife. She was shrouded in mystery, with even her name being a subject of argument for centuries, with even 13th century writers theorizing what her true identity might have been. But there are two pieces of evidence that suggest that she might have been high-born and been part of a legitimate marriage. And those two pieces of evidence were her children. 
Egwin had a daughter with Edward, and she would grow up to marry the Norse king of Ireland and Northumbria. And as for Athelstan, he grows up to become the first king of England. If Egwin really was low-born or just a concubine, would her kids have the political clout to be able to pull that off? I don't know. But it has led some writers, such as J.L. Nelson, to suspect that this was actually a high-status pairing and that Alfred was behind the union for political purposes. And perhaps Edward resented it, and that's why she vanishes from the record as if she never existed shortly after Alfred's death. Unfortunately, we'll probably never know exactly why Egwin vanishes from the record. Whether it was because she died, or whether it was because she was cast aside, it's unknown. But whatever the cause, she emerges from the shadows, delivers us two powerful figures in history, and then returns to those same shadows almost as fast as she had come. But as for young Athelstan, born in 898 to a powerful family, well, Alfred, in his waning years, developed plans for him. William of Malmesbury tells us that shortly after Athelstan was born, Alfred ordered that he be sent to be raised at the court of Mercia, under the care of Athelred and Athelflad of Mercia, his aunt and uncle. We don't know exactly why Alfred did this. A move like that might have been intended to bind the two families together and further unite Wessex with recently annexed Mercia. It might have also been a recognition that Mercia didn't have a male heir, and Alfred was looking at Mercian succession through West Saxon eyes, eyes that would have required a male heir. And by having Athelstan raised in court, perhaps the thinking was that that would allow the young boy to build the right to the throne, so that he could challenge any rivals from the old Mercian royal dynasties that might have wanted to reassert their claims. Or perhaps he just knew that Athelred and Athelflad were warriors, and the boy did need to be trained in the family business of kicking ass, and Edward was just too busy to do that. Or perhaps it was just that Edwin was already dead, or cast off, and Alfred wasn't very forward-thinking on the whole single dad thing. I mean, hell, perhaps this is all bullshit and it's a rewriting of history to establish Athelstan's claim to all of England. I really don't know. But at least according to William of Malmesbury, Alfred ordered that Athelstan, son of Edward, be sent to Mercia. And then, with that done, the king gathered the Witan to him at Chelsea. He had a new plan. The Burrs were a tremendous military success story, but he wanted them to be financial successes as well. He was looking to use his new forts to kickstart a new West Saxon economic surge. So prime lands and burrs were being granted to his most faithful supporters. And doing this had two benefits. First, it further bound the nobles to his family through honor and fealty. But it also created a situation where those lands would now have a new influx of cash. And that would result in a burst in trade. And the center of that trade network was London which would need to expand to accommodate the increase in demand. The plan was to build upon London's history as an economic and trading center, which had been there since the Roman times, and to plant the seeds that would help it grow even farther. In doing this, Alfred added his name to a long list of benefactors that have enabled London to thrive for about 2,000 years, slowly growing into one of the major economic pillars of the world. Everything was falling into place for Alfred. And so with succession, his family's security, and the economic future of his kingdom handled, Alfred returned to a labor of love. Literacy. And in particular, 
he wanted to translate the ancient Hebrew songs and poems contained in the Bible, the Psalms. For generations, the verses of the Psalms were only understood by a select few, primarily those within the church, and that's because they were exclusively reproduced in Latin. But most of Alfred's subjects only understood Old English. They didn't know Latin, and thus they couldn't understand the Psalms. But thanks to his courtly school, Alfred had become a gifted translator. And so at the age of either 49 or 50, Alfred set about translating 150 psalms into his native tongue. It's a wonderful moment of continuity in Alfred's life. And I wonder if he saw it. According to Asser, one of Alfred's earliest memories, one of his earliest accolades, had been winning a book of poetry from his mother as a small child. He had wanted that book so badly that even though he was illiterate at the time, he had worked to memorize the poems. And life had been so different back then. At that point in his life, he was the baby of a large family, a child of two doting parents with a wealth of older siblings who must have seemed like demigods out there battling the fearsome Vikinger hordes. The family gatherings he attended with such a large and energetic family must have been raucous and full of life. And then one by one, they all died. Those gatherings got smaller and smaller until Alfred stood alone, a virtual orphan ruling a kingdom under siege. His life hadn't been an easy one. So many lives had been lost. So many opportunities missed. For the old king sitting in his library, the young boy with his book of poems must have felt impossibly far away. But now, even though he was the last of his brothers and sisters, even though so many of his friends were gone, sitting in his study, diligently translating his book of poems, I wonder if he felt a degree of continuity. I wonder if he realized that while he had suffered and lost so much, now, at the end of his life, he wasn't alone. His family stretched across Western Europe. He was a father and a grandfather many times over. His reign might have been a fluke, an unintended consequence of a cascade of family tragedies, but it had also been among the most successful in the history of Wessex. And now his reign was finally secure. For over half of his life, he had been devoted to his duties. And now, thanks to those efforts, he was free to return to his first love, poetry. On October 26, 899, at the age of either 50 or 51, Alfred died. As for his final great work, we only have the first 50 of the Psalms. It seems that he simply ran out of time. He had spent nearly three decades redesigning Wessex into a political, military, and cultural powerhouse. And now, that work would be left to his children. He had done all he could to prepare the kingdom and his heirs for the world that awaited him. Now it was their turn to take up the mantle. And so Alfred laid down his burden. And if anyone deserved a rest, it was him. Throughout history, we have met many figures that have soaring myths, and there will be many more. But there are few like Alfred. Often, the myths and titles don't fit. Often, they're letdowns, and the more we dig into the person, the more the myth falls away. Alfred, however, not only lives up to his myths, he exceeds them. 
This man was so much more than cakes and ships. His rise to power, his wars, his remarkable mind, and the way he reshaped virtually every aspect of life in Wessex. Those things are not even part of the popular mythology, but they are precisely why, to this day, Alfred stands alone among the monarchs of the Heptarchy and of England. No English king but Alfred, in the full course of history, has held his title. There was only one Alfred the Great. Yeah.